This episode of A Slice of Ham is brought to you by Shelby Wheeler, Shauna, Seth Godwin, Rebecca Handy, Mindy Carrier, Megan Weimer, Marty Abernathy, Leslie Gettinger, Christy Knapp, Kimberly Newell, Carly Madden, Jordan Maloney, Jordan Ackley, Heather Aranda, Dan Murphy, Crystal Lurvey, Shalan Lane, Brooke Ponstein, August Reed, Allie McDowell, Aislinn Wilkerson, and Elizabeth. Thank you very much for joining the family. Thank you very much for offering your support. I love you very dearly. I love you very graciously. Thank you for sticking around at all. Also, for those of you that are interested in watching me play video games and chatting with me live, I have a Twitch account at twitch.tv slash Hamilton Streams. So if you are interested in that, feel free to check that out. All right. And now we'll take you back to your regularly scheduled slice of ham. I'm a spooky fuck. Oh. Ooh, I coming to haunt you now. Ooh, that's me as my that's me as a ghost everyone. It's officially October. Oh my god. You would not believe how happy I am that it is finally the month of October. It's finally Biggie season, as people no doubt call it. Um, this is an unpopular opinion. Spooky season. That annoys me. I uh, am annoyed by that. And I don't know why. I could not tell you why. Um, hey, hi. Welcome to an episode of Slice of Ham. Welcome to another episode of Let's read welcome to the monday night book club whatever you want to call it if you are here to listen to me read a book you came to the right place because that's exactly what the fuck we're gonna do today oh my god it is so spooky in here oh oh e ooh. i'm so scared i'm so scared you would not believe how scared i am this month it's a very spooky month. Right now, it is Mean Girls Day. I'm recording this on October 3rd. It is a Sunday. It is currently 11.50 a.m., and I feel productive. Um, so, what are we doing? I, I have been very busy the, the past week setting up the stream, trying to get that all taken care of. Um, live streaming is really fucking confusing it is so confusing um but it's interesting and it's fun as well so i figured out how to hook up like my old ps2 to the capture card so i can play old um old playstation games i was playing destroy all humans the other day on my stream so that was fun so if you want to join if you want to follow if you want to subscribe if you just want to hang out twitch.tv slash hamilton streams that is the place to go i gotta blow my fucking nose all right, I am no longer stuffy. I am ready to go. Where did we leave off last time? Okay, so we stopped 
at chapter 21, um, the Riverside County whole sheriff's department, they are gathering their evidence. They are building a case against David and Louise. They are interviewing the children and also taking care of them. They are at the hospital. They are, uh, they've been at the hospital. They've been, you know, getting food. They've been getting taken care of. They've been shown love. They've been doted over for the first time in their lives. So that's good. That's very, very good. All righty. Now we move on to chapter 22. I think we're going to get into deep into the actual, like, 75 felony charges. We're getting into the actual, like, logistical trial proceedings here uh, in David and Louise Turpin's case. All right, so we're going to start off with chapter 22. This is depraved conduct. At 11 o'clock a.m. Thursday morning, Riverside County District Attorney Michael Hestron held a press conference to announce that he was filing 75 felony charges against David and Louise Turpin. If convicted of all of them, they faced 94 years to life in prison. And this is around the point where we start, ooh, we start getting our comeuppance. We start kind of licking our lips and salivating. We start grinding our teeth at the fact that these people will no doubt be in jail for the rest of their lives if all things go smoothly, because there have been cases where things get fucked up. So it's it's going to be interesting to see how the trial goes. <laughs> To the right side of the conference room stage were two blown-up mugshots of Louise and David Turpin. So many reporters and camera crews were there that some sat on the stage, just feet away from Hestron. What I'd like to do today is first tell you what we've charged and the potential consequences of those charges, Hestron began, and then give you a snapshot of some of the evidence. He then outlined some of the charges. Twelve counts each of torture against all their children except two-year-old Jana. Seven counts each of cruelty to a dependent adult against their seven children aged 18 and over. Twelve counts each of false imprisonment. Six counts each of willful child cruelty against their six minor children. One charge against David Turpin of committing a lewd act uh, by force or fear on his daughter Jordan when she was under the age of 14. All the charges ranged from June 11, 2010, when they first moved to Riverside County, to their arrest on January 14, 2018. Hestron said he would be requesting bail to be set at $13 million for each defendant, $1 million for each child. We're fully prepared to seek justice in this case, he said, and do so in a way that protects those victims from further harm. The youthful, collegiate-looking district attorney, wearing a brown tailored suit and glasses, appealed to anyone with any additional information to contact his senior investigator, Wade Walsvik. <laughs> These names in this book, Jesus Christ. Wade Walsvik. We're asking for the public's help, he said, not only here in California, but in Texas. Someone must have seen something. Someone must have noticed something. We need your help. Hestron then continued by finally revealing some of the heartbreaking details of this case. First of all, 
I want to tell you these individuals sleep all day and are up all night, he said. <laughs> all 13 of the victims, including defendants, typically got to sleep around 4 or 5 in the morning. He went on to specify some of the horrific punishments David and Louise Turpin had employed to condition and control their own children. Starting many years ago, they began to be tied up, said the DA, first with ropes. One victim was tied up and hogtied. When that victim was able to escape the ropes, the defendants eventually began using chains and padlocks to chain up the victims to their beds. These punishments would last for weeks or even months at a time. The DA revealed that three of the victims had actually been chained up when police first arrived. Circumstantial evidence in the house, he continued, suggests that the victims were often not released from their chains to go to the bathroom. Jesus. Circumstantial evidence around. He was like, well, circumstantial, he can't say evidence in the house because circumstantial, you have to be as concrete as possible when you're moving into trial proceedings like this. So you can't say like, oh, this is evidence of abuse because then another defense lawyer can come and say, well, no, 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 blah, blah, blah red tape, red tape, and this, that, and the other, and black and white, and fine print, and yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so he's doing his due diligence by saying, you know, there's circumstantial evidence in the house, you know, you, I can't say anything more. He's basically saying, yeah, it was obvious that the kids were, like, shitting on themselves because they were chained up. They couldn't go to the bathroom. They couldn't leave. Ugh. He then discussed the escape which Jordan had been planning with her siblings for more than two years. She escaped through a window, said Hestron, and took one of her siblings with her. That sibling eventually became frightened and turned back and went into the house. The DA told reporters that the neglect and abuse had started when the family lived in Texas. At one point, the parents had lived apart from most of the children, occasionally dropping off food. After the family moved to Marietta in 2010, the abuse and severe neglect intensified. All the victims have now been examined by doctors and medical professionals, he said. All the victims were, and are, severely malnourished. He said that 29-year-old Jennifer weighed less than 80 pounds, and 13-year-old Jolinda was the weight of a 7-year-old. Several of the victims had suffered cognitive impairment and nerve damage, the result of years of physical abuse. The punishments, he said, included frequent beatings and even strangulation. None of the victims, said Hestron, had seen a doctor in over four years and had never been to the dentist. They were allowed to shower only once a year. <sighs> when the siblings were not chained up, they were locked in different rooms and fed meagerly on a schedule. Although they were not allowed toys, investigators had found many unopened toys in the house, still in their original packaging. To gasps from reporters... The DA explained how David and Louise would cruelly taunt their starving children by leaving scrumptious pies on the kitchen counter. They could see and smell the pies, but were forbidden from eating them, having to watch them rot before being thrown away. They, John Glatt is really, he's mentioned the pies at least nine times now throughout the book. It's like he really wants us to be mad about the pie thing. And yeah, that sucks and that's cruel, but I don't think that they were doing it like, <laughs> we're going to put the pies there and you can't have any. I think they're just, they were just like, we're going to buy a pie and eat it. And then they were, got lazy and just left it there. But the rule is still that the kids can't fucking eat on their own. They have to ask permission. So it wasn't like, 
I, I don't think, and of course I'm being speculative here, I'm being a fucking stupid straight white man with an opinion saying, speaking his mind, but based on what I have read, based on the evidence, I can extrapolate that David and Louise probably bought the pies to eat them themselves because they're big fat fucks. And then they just sort of forgot about them because they're lazy and they don't clean the house. And because the kids cannot eat without asking, the pies rotted instead because it's too scary to ask. Or if they did ask, they would get a no. So, and not a no because we want to eat the pie and watch it rot and me, me, me. We want to be cruel. I think it's just, uh, no, you're not allowed to eat unless it's the eating time. You're not allowed to eat unless it's... This specific time, through this specific routine, you eat your burrito, you eat your peanut butter sandwich, you eat your little, you know, your your cold burrito from the fridge, and then and that's what you eat. And this is not the eating time. The pie is not your food. That's not the allotted food that you're given, so you do not eat. Go back to your room. Again, to anyone listening, if any of this sounds familiar, if any of this sounds, you know, if you look at this and go, hmm, my mom kind of acts like that, or, oh, that sounds like my Uncle John and how he talks to my cousin. Oh, my God. You need to call somebody. Call a guidance counselor or call the police. Um, <laughs> I would call a guidance counselor first. Golly, the fucking pies. <sighs> Supposedly homeschooled, he continued, the children lacked even a basic knowledge of life. Many of the children didn't know what a police officer was. Holy moly. Wow. Wow. How did Jordan know what 911 is? Jordan, because Jordan was the hero that saved everybody. She was the one that escaped. This is, the, this is a fucking miracle. <laughs> now, like, now that we are, we are on page two hundred and four. We are two hundred pages into a. Let's see, how many page? About a three hundred and six page book. So we have a. We're about a third of the way through. Congratulations to us. I love that we're fucking reading, y'all. We we are about two hundred pages in, and. The one thing that I can, the only thing that I can fucking think of is what a miracle that these children survived all this. That what a miracle that they got out. <sighs> Jordan Turpin is a fucking hero for escaping, and the rest of the Turpin children are fucking heroes because they went through this. These children are unstoppable they are amazing they are amazing children it is insane what they went through and to still be able to get through it and to be able to like smile a little bit to be able to have a, a bit of hope as as helpless as they were at the time I, it, it would be very hard for me to come out of that situation and not give up because there are times when, like, even right now, with all the privilege that I have, I want to give up. 
And then I think about what the Turpin kids went through. And they still have that twinkle in their eye. These, this whole case is a miracle. It's a miracle that they were found. It's insane that they were abused for so long. It's amazing that they got out. It's amazing that their parents got their comeuppance. I cannot believe it. Me, me, me. The only thing the siblings were allowed to do was keep journals. Hundreds of them were now being combed through by investigators for evidence. It's a very complex case, said the DA. It's important that we gather and analyze this evidence. Based on the information I've shared with you today, it's my hope that members of the public will come forward with any information about this family or these crimes. Hestron then introduced his director of victim services, Melissa Donaldson, to talk about the help the children would be receiving. She told reporters they would need long-term help, and her department would be working closely with Child Protective Services to ensure that they were not re-victimized. We have a crisis response team, she said, and those victim advocates are specific... Holy moly, stroke, stroke victim, that is me, I had a stroke. We have a crisis response team, she said, and those victim advocates are specially trained in mass casualty and victimization and are ready and serving the victims. That's one of the problems with reading a book for the first time on the podcast. I don't know how to speak. Then, D.A. Hestrin opened the floor for questions. The first was what the lewd act charge was in reference to. We're alleging that David Turpin, he said, touched one of the victims in a lewd way by using force or fear. Asked if David and Louise were the biological parents of all 13 children, Hestron said it was too early to know, but investigators would certainly be looking into it. A TV reporter asked why they had done this to their children. I don't know that I can answer that completely, Hestron replied, but I'll tell you that as a prosecutor, there are cases that stick with you that haunt you. Sometimes in this business we're faced with looking at human depravity, and that's what we're looking at here. He was then asked to characterize the type of control the parents put under the children 24 hours a day. This is severe emotional physical abuse, he answered. There's no way around that. This is depraved conduct. A reporter asked whether the parents were partly nuts. I can't answer that question, replied the DA. Finally, he was asked how his team of investigators were dealing with this horrendous case on a personal level while remaining objective. Well, we're not robots, Hestron said, and this is difficult for everybody that sees these images and hears these stories. So, it breaks our heart. But we're professionals. Ultimately, our job is to go to court and seek justice, and we're going to do that. Ooh-wee. I wonder how it affected... The, the people that, you know, worked on this case as well. Um, and it's interesting that that TV reporter that was like, why did they do this to their children? Who fucking knows? There's something that I don't like. I don't particularly care to cover. There's something inherently frustrating to me about missing person cases 
because I feel like if I get, I feel like I would want to save everybody if I got too, too, too involved. Um, I, I'm more so read about like the grisly murders and the cults and this, that, and the other, but missing persons, I, I struggle with the, with the why I struggle with the lack of answers. Um, and I want these people to be found. It's, there's something inherently frustrating about a mystery like that. Um, in a case like this with rampant child abuse, it's, the why? I don't know if we're going to get it. And there are some true crime cases that are just as frustrating and just as perplexing and just as mysterious as a missing person case, as a person that would just up and vanish without a trace. Because we have no real access to the why. I think in David and Louise Turpin's case, we do have a little bit of insight as to the why. They did this. Um, the the their family life, how David and Louise were abused and taught to abuse in their early life. You know, Louise going through her abuse and David living under those strict religious rules and bringing them into his parenting style. But I don't think that can explain all of it. I don't think that explains. Them change well. At some point, they start they start drinking, and Louise started drinking especially, so that exacerbated things. But really, we I don't know the why. We can speculate, you know. I can give my you know my thoughts as to what I think it can be, like I just did. But we don't have a definitive why at this stage of the game. Maybe we will at the end of the book. I don't know. Uh, all I can tell you is that. David and Louise Turpin piss themselves daily. They piss themselves daily. I was reading, I was doing some research. I was Googling David and Louise Turpin. Like, where are they now? Like 2021. And I read some reports. David Turpin, actually, he is in a minimum security prison. He's in a minimum security wing. But he has no cellmate because he pisses the bed every night. Isn't that weird? Isn't that crazy? And Louise Turpin, same thing, except she's in a maximum security wing because she tends to dip her fingers in her pee and flick it at people. So they keep her sequestered from the general population. Uh, they keep her away. Louise Turpin. I don't think these people are very fun. I'm going to be the first person to say it. <laughs> Two hours later, David and Louise Turpin were arraigned at the Riverside Hall of Justice. The two defendants were led through a tunnel from the Robert Presley Detention Center, where they had been held since their arrest, into the court across the road. They were already shackled, waist and wrist, at the defense table, when reporters and photographers were allowed in. The defendants both wore black blazers, provided by the Public Defender's Office. David... Unshaven, with shoulder-length dyed blonde hair, wore a purple shirt, the heavy chain tightly wound across his paunch. Each had their own defense team. David was being represented by public defenders David Mocker and Allison Lowe, Louise by Jeff Moore of Riverside-based Blumenthal Law Offices. Holy shit. 
So Louise got a lawyer. David has public defenders. Weird. That does kind of speak to both of them. Because David, I think, you know, is like, well, I was just doing what my religion, I was just being what I, being myself. I don't know. And Louise, I think, would be, try to be more snaky about it. Louise is nasty. I don't like her at all. And she looks like a frog. As a public defender, Mocker could represent David, but it would be a conflict of interest if his office also represented Louise. So private attorney Jeff Moore would do so. Okay, that's the that's the reason why then. Where was I? During the seven-minute arraignment, they sat on either side of their lawyers, briefly glancing at each other. To their right sat Riverside County Deputy D.A. Kevin Beecham, who would be the lead prosecutor in the case. Prior to the arraignment, none of the defense lawyers had met their clients, and as Jeff Moore spoke to Louise at the defense table, she smiled at him. Before the proceedings, Mocker asked, if his, asked his new client if his name was spelled correctly on the voluminous charge sheets. I don't have my reading glasses with me, David muttered, turning towards Louise and shrugging. Judge Michael B. Donner entered the courtroom to begin the arraignment. Mocker asked the judge to ban all film or electronic coverage of the proceedings, saying it would harm his client. The prosecutor had no objection, but Judge Donner denied the motion. I'm told the coverage of this case literally spans the globe, explained the judge, and that photographs, people's comments, editorials, etc. have been out there in the news for a very long time, so I can't find that the electronic coverage of the arraignment today will be as prejudicial as suggested by the defense. After the prosecution told the judge that it had submitted initial discovery, police records and the siblings' medical records, to the defense, both defense teams confirmed that they had advised their clients of their constitutional rights, asking the court to waive reading of the complaint and enter pleas of not guilty to all 75 counts. Woo! Not guilty! Dirty bitch! Are you serious? They're really trying to go for not guilty? Well, of course they are. Holy shit, they have no remorse. They, you know, with David fucking, when he got crying, when he was arrested, oh, buh, 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 boo-hoo, at least Louise had the fucking balls to spit at the cops and sneer and spurk and not give a fuck. At least she's committing to the bitter end. Fuck David, fuck Louise, Fuck them both. And I say at least she's committing to the bitter end in jest. F fuck her for doing any of this at all. I hate that she's committing to any sort of bit. I hate that David is fucking wishy-washy at all. I hate that they abused their children. Why couldn't they have just been normal fucking parents? That's what pisses me off. It tastes very bad to me. <laughs> the only time the Turpins spoke was to quietly answer, yes. When Judge Donner asked them if they also waived a speedy preliminary hearing within 10 days, he then continued bail at $12 million each, setting the next hearing for February 23rd. Outside the courtroom, Mocker conceded that defending David Turpin was going to be a challenge. We're going to provide a rigorous defense, he declared, the case will be tried in court, not in the media. 
Louise's attorney, Jeff Moore, was equally aware of the high stakes of this case. It doesn't get more serious, he said, in terms of severity of the conduct being alleged and also the exposure in prison. A few hours after the arraignment, Louise's half-sister McCreary Lee, the daughter of Phyllis and David Lee, and also a former U.S. Marine in Guam, posted an emotional appeal on Facebook to leave her family alone. She wrote that she had not intended to post anything about this mess, but felt compelled to after the accusations that the family must have known what was going on and had ignored it. Yes, we knew David and Louise were a bit odd, she wrote, but there was no way in hell we knew they were torturing our nieces and nephews. Please leave the kids and us alone. We're reeling from the news just like everyone else, and what the kids are going through is unspeakable. Additionally, we know just about as much as everyone else does. Asking us questions won't get you many answers. Chapter 23 We Stand United with the Turpin Children At 160 Muir Woods Road, a Christmas star still hung in the window, and Louise's prized statue of a hissing serpent remained outside the front door. All day long, people arrived at the Turpin house, leaving candles, stuffed animals, flowers, balloons, and heartfelt notes of love and support for the Turpin siblings. How about you give them to the fucking kids at the hospital instead of leaving it on the street in front of their house? I love, I appreciate that sentiment. I love that. It, it, it makes sense when a, when a child or, or a family member or somebody in that situation has died, but when the children are still alive and can breathe and can appreciate that love, why not give that shit to them at the hospital instead of leaving it at their fucking house where they were abused? No, 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 no. The kids are so loved by so many people read one note. They will go on to do wonderful and great things. God bless, read another. I pray for nothing but joy for all of you. You're in our thoughts. We stand united with the Turpin children, declared a third. Three-year-old Riley Unger, who lives a few doors away, left two of her own teddy bears on their porch for children she had never met. Neighbor Wendy Martinez told the Press Enterprise, for me, it's to show a little light in the dark tunnel. I, wh Wendy, that, that's an interesting... Well, for me, it's to show that there's a little light in the dark tunnel. So is this for the neighborhood and not for the children? Is this for y'all? Is this like, oh, look at all the toys and the notes on their front door. Mm, we did a good job. There's a light at the end of the tunnel. Give all those fucking toys to those children. Give those notes to those kids. What the fuck is happening? I don't mean to yell, but I'm, I feel like I'm taking crazy pills right now. What is... <laughs> like, yeah, it makes sense to do that, to, to pile up a bunch of, like, stuffed animals and stuff when, like, a ch I remember they did that for... Um, Gabriel Fernandez, they piled up a bunch of stuffed animals at his place because he died. These children are still alive and can appreciate this. 
for me. It's to show a little light in the dark tunnel. Show them that. Show the children that. It's not for you, you fuck. Those kids need a light at the dark tunnel. You have been driving with cruise control on this whole time, bitch. These children have been in the trunk. Money was still... <laughs> Money was still pouring into the Corona Chamber of Commerce and the Riverside University Health System Medical Center from all over the world with some donations as high as $10,000. Our phones started ringing almost immediately, said Executive Director Aaron Phillips, with calls from private individuals and organizations wanting to know how they can help. We recognize financial gifts will not eliminate their trauma, but additional resources will be extremely important in helping these victims adjust over time. Good fucking point. The Chamber of Commerce had now received $65,000, and the Riverside University Health System, where the younger siblings were being treated, had collected almost 200000 That makes me very happy. That... That is good. Because yes, money will not erase the trauma, but it'll at least make them, e it'll make it easier for them to live and deal with that trauma so, you know, they can get on their feet later on. Someone at the hospital mentioned how good it would be for educational purposes for them to have an iPad, said Corona Chamber President Bobby Spiegel. So I went to my Rotary Club and said, does anyone know anyone in the computer business? Then one lady says, I'll donate one. And in less than a minute... 13 people's hands went up to buy an iPad. Several days after the Chamber of Commerce fund was launched, a homeless man approached Spiegel outside his office. He reaches into his pocket, said Spiegel, and pulls out $2.38, probably everything he had. And he's, oh man, holy shit. Oh man. I don't mean to get emotional and cry directly into the microphone, but like those of you that have followed me this long have to know by now that I cry very easily because I like it, it's therapeutic, it feels good, and sometimes things make you cry. And this is one of the saddest things I've ever read, but also one of the most sweet, but oh, he shouldn't have to do this. He pulls out $2.38, probably everything he had, and he says, I want you to tell the kids that the world is watching and they love them. Ugh. And I still tear up over it because that is the good that has come. Wow, 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 wow. Wow. <clears throat> I want you to tell the kids that the world is watching and they love them. <laughs> oh my goodness. Wow. Although he had never met the seven Turpin adults, Spiegel received regular reports on their progress at Corona Regional Medical Center. He had also received many offers of free dental care for life for the children. The boys got haircuts for the first time, he said. They had long, long hair. Captain Kangaroo is what the dad looks like. Joshua and Jonathan donated their hair to Locks of Love, a nonprofit organization that makes wigs for cancer victims. 
The medical team treating the seven Turpin adults at Corona Regional Medical Center soon found themselves becoming personally involved with their patients. They empathized with the older siblings and were horrified to see firsthand what they had suffered. Hospital CEO Mark Uffer told ABC News of one 24-year-old nurse the same age as Jessica Turpin, who was shocked to see her emaciated body. It becomes very personal to you, explained Uffer, and it hurts to see what one human being can do to another human being, so it does stay with you. Everyone on the team treating the older siblings had been affected, with many reduced to tears. I don't think there's any of us, he said that are involved or have spoken to them or interacted with them that slept much in the last week, because you wake up in the middle of the night worrying about them. All the physicians treating the Turpins had been carefully chosen to develop a bond and a trust with them to help them heal physically and mentally. We are the first stage of their introduction to the outside world, explained their primary physician, Dr. Fari Kamalpour. Child trauma expert Allison Davis-Maxson agreed that the Turpin siblings would need ongoing love and support from trusted people who care about them in order to help them overcome the relational trauma and intense deprivation they had suffered. Healing takes time and is a process, she said. You can't go back and erase early deprivation, neglect, and trauma. We're wired from the moment we enter the world to get our needs met through human connection. And early deprivation starves all aspects of our social and emotional development, especially impacting brain development. Think about how we learn language. We learn that through relationships. We don't learn that in isolation. When children, especially at early ages, experience severe deprivation, they don't learn this dance of attachment. They may struggle to learn how to communicate their needs and or feel valuable enough to get emotionally close to others. So what you'll see is a social-emotional awkwardness or a stuntedness. They may struggle in being able to read and attune with what other people are feeling, being in awareness of what they themselves are feeling and why they are feeling it. Being able to communicate their emotional and attachment needs, thoughts, and feelings to other people requires basic trust, self-awareness, and the willingness to take a risk. The process of treating the siblings would be a long one, Maxon said, as their physiological symptoms and development had not progressed in a normal way. Childhood development often occurs sequentially, she explained. Children first learn to sit up, then crawl, then stand, then walk, then run. Our social-emotional skills are similar in that children first learn to make sounds, then words, then string words into sentences, then identify what they need or what they are feeling, and then they communicate what they are feeling to people they trust. Our brains and bodies are built to develop and learn like that, So when windows of opportunity diminish or close, the next part of what we need to learn can't sit on top of a particular skill set or competency because we were deprived of the experiences needed to master or learn those skills. So children who have experienced extreme and chronic deprivation can be 15 years old or 20 years old and in some ways emotionally and socially function like they're 3 or 5 or 8 years old. It's not something you can just bounce back from. On Friday, 
the Riverside County District Attorney's Office announced that it would seek a criminal protective order barring David and Louise Turpin from any further contact with their children. Good. This would prevent the Turpins from communicating with their children to try to pressure them in any way before the trial. That night, the city of Paris held a neighborhood watch meeting to help residents cope with the Turpin case. More than 55 residents gathered in Monument Park, just a short walk away from the now-notorious Turpin House. We tried not to let that get out publicly, said Mayor Vargas, because we wanted to focus just on the community members of that neighborhood. But the press was there. They got hold of it right away. At the meeting, Paris city officials assured residents that although it was an appalling situation, they would have to move on. Like you, said city manager Richard Belmudez, we know that these two individuals don't define the 74,998 individuals who live in this community. Captain Greg Fellows of the Riverside County Sheriff's Department urged residents to volunteer for community service to ensure that this never happens again. You would be surprised, said Fellows, that the extra eyes and ears you have can make a significant difference in your community. At the end of the meeting, there was a solemn procession to 160 Muir Woods Road for a vigil, where residents lit candles and sang Amazing Grace. I think that's a better way to... to work through that. You know, that does put the the stuffed animals and stuff on the door for that. That puts that into better perspective for me because that is a good point that they bring up. That how horrible was this for like the town to go through? I, I what guilt did the neighbors feel? You know, I I wonder. Because if, if if I was a neighbor in, in that situation, I would feel very guilty for not noticing, for not doing anything. Even though I couldn't have seen any, I, I couldn't have seen. Nobody, no one could have seen that coming. Still, I'm sure that they felt guilty. Boy, oh boy. I'm just glad, again, I'm glad the kids are out. Later that night... ABC's 2020 broadcast a special on the Turpin case, retracting Dave, uh, retracing David and Louise's life back to Princeton, West Virginia. Riverside County DA Michael Hestron gave an exclusive interview for the program, revealing new details about the case. You've got parents who are torturing their children, he said, causing them pain, causing them suffering over a prolonged period of time through malnourishment, through physical abuse, through psychological abuse. It's horrific. Elizabeth Flores was also featured, describing their childhood back in Princeton, West Virginia, as a pretty normal life. But when prompted, she did open up about the darker parts of her and Louise's past. There was sexual abuse by a family member, she admitted. A close family friend, not our parents. We were not allowed to talk about it. And I'm not making excuses for my sister, but I think that may have been an underlying issue. Elizabeth said that both Louise's and David's family had both attended the same Pentecostal church in Princeton. I've known David all my life, she told 2020's Elizabeth Vargas. My parents and his parents were pretty close. We all attended the Princeton Church of God for years and years and years. 
The show turned to Louise and David's time in Texas, where they had most of their fifteen, uh, most of their thirteen children. Ashley Vineyard, whose brief friendship with Jennifer and Joshua was ended by their mother, recalled the day they all moved into a double-wide trailer at the back of the house. She never saw them again. The secrecy just grew and grew, she said. One day they just vanished. Billy Baldwin, who bought the Turpin spread after it was foreclosed on, said the house was left in a disgusting mess. He also showed some Polaroid pictures he had found, pointing out a rope hanging off a bed rail in one of the children's bedrooms. But we didn't have no idea what was going there, he said. I really feel bad that something like that would happen. The special followed the Turpins to Southern California, focusing on their trips to Disneyland. She was obsessed with Disneyland, said Elizabeth. Her whole marriage, they've had season passes and go regularly. They were obsessed with Disney and Mickey Mouse. There's something fucking scary about, like, hyper-obsessed Disney adults. There's something weird about, like, the fixation. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know about, um, Disney adults. Ooh, they're scary. Oh, it's Halloween. <laughs> Halloween! ay 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 the show also screened video clips from one of the Turpin's three wedding renewal ceremonies in Las Vegas. It was a fun wedding, said Elvis impersonator Kent Ripley, because I got to see smiles on their kids' faces. Mike Clifford Sr., who lived opposite the Turpins in Murrieta, California, said he often saw the siblings after midnight, marching back and forth in single file. He thought it was some kind of therapy. Oh, okay. At the this just goes to there is such an amazing capacity for the human brain to just business as usual to just like oh weird all right whatever the one th I mean what what can you think you see kids like marching single file for hours on end you don't think like boy they're being abused you think huh weird and then you go back to what you're doing we are so self involved as human beings. And not to, like, a bad, like, oh, we're so selfish. It, we can't help it. We can't help it. We would never think that that would go on there anyway. So we think of some, we, we can't think of the worst. So we just go, oh, weird. It's amazing how the human brain can just gloss over shit. Wow. At the end of the show, D.A. Hestron once again appealed for anyone who knew anything to contact the newly set up Turpin tip line. We want to know anything and everything, he said. These alleged crimes were committed in a closed house, in a closed room, under cover of darkness. But someone must have seen something, and we're asking for the public's help. On Sunday, January 21st, one week after the escape, Jim and Betty Turpin attended a service at the Princeton Church of God. Afterward, they met with Pastor Ray Hurt for counseling. David's family, his mother and father, are very faithful, very solid citizens, said Dr. Hurt, and their concern has been primarily for their grandchildren because through the years they've been kept apart from them. They haven't been able to get very much response from their son and daughter-in-law. The grandparents told the pastor about their last family visit to Marietta. They said they did not notice any behaviors in the children out of the ordinary, he said. They acted happy. Now, of course, the Turpins are elderly and only there for a few days, and they're not trained professionals in terms of psychology, so they might not have noticed anything. 
The Church of God pastor also emphasized that David and Louise Turpin's treatment of their children had absolutely nothing to do with Pentecostal teachings. We consider children a gift from God, he said, to be nurtured and cared for. We stick to a pretty strict admonition of care and love for children. I don't know where they came up with their ideology, their thinking. Something happened to them after they left here, obviously. I mean, that's true. There, there are roots in the Pentecostal religion, but I think they, they didn't use the Pentecostal religion as a complete, like, play-by-play backbone. They used it as... What's the best way to put this? It's like it's like the the teachings that they learned in the Pentecostal religion were like 101, like a 101 level class. And then once they left, they started studying other shit, like abuse, malnutrition, psychological abuse, you know, all those lovely things that are in the grab bag of the Turpins. I wonder when we'll see the funny sitcom of the Turpins. And then David will come in with a, he'll he'll come in and he'll go, honey, I brought pie. And then the laugh track will go, ah, ha, 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 ha. Real funny. You know, it is funny. The fact that David and Louise are in jail. Or are they? They are in jail, but for how long? I wonder if we'll find out. Next chapter. I turned the page to chapter 24, Family Secrets. On Monday, January 22nd, Teresa Robinette was the special guest on fucking Megan Kelly Today. In front of a studio audience, an emotional Teresa and David, uh, an emotional Teresa said David and Louise were dead to her now after what they had done. Let's talk about Louise, said Kelly. There was abuse in your family. In the wake of this discovery, can you tell us a little about that? Oh, just leave him alone. A very, very close family member that we should have loved and trusted abused my mother, said Teresa, tearing up. And then me and Louise and Elizabeth and a few of our cousins. That was ongoing for me and my sisters, and my mother still took us around this person a lot. Yeah, because he paid her. Kelly asked if she had ever publicly outed the man responsible. No, Teresa replied. The adults in our family protected him because he was family, but it was always a dark family secret that he did this. Teresa told Kelly about Louise and David's trip to Alabama and their sexual experimentation. Teresa said that growing up, Louise had never smoked a cigarette or drank alcohol because of her strict religious beliefs, but when she turned 40, she and David stopped going to church, began drinking, and had an open marriage. At the end of the interview, Kelly asked what Teresa hoped would happen with all her nieces and nephews. My main hope is that I can put my arm around them, she replied, and just tell them that they have family that love them, that's not deranged, that this is what it's supposed to be like. On Monday afternoon, a Canadian skydiver died after colliding with another jumper and crashing into the roof of a house less than a mile away from Muir Woods Road. When the reporters camped outside the Turpin house learned the news, they rushed to the scene of the accident, giving residents a brief respite from the constant media presence. That was the only time they left, said resident Donald Kick, 
<laughs> what the fuck is up with these names? Donald, Donald Kick, K-I-C-K, like the verb, kick, Donald Kick. Who lives in this town? And I, d- I don't mean to call attention to every goddamn name, but like Verlin Moy. What was it? Steve, is it in the, I don't know if there is a, I don't know if it's in this book or in The Perfect Father. I'm reading on my secret book club. Oh my God. If you're not a member of the secret book club, it's only $10 a month. But I understand if that might be too much for some people, you know, everybody has their different limits. But we're reading uh, The Perfect Father, which is the Chris Watts story. Mar, 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 bar, bar, bar. Um, and I think there was a, a person in that book named like, Oh, it was such a good name, I forgot. It was like Stephen Simple or something like that. I don't know, but I love weird mundane names like that. Donald Kick? I just imagine like an infomercial, like a shitty infomercial where he's like, Hi, I'm Donald Kick with Donald Kick's laundromats. Are you tired of your washing machine not working? Well, then come on down to the kick and get yourself, rest your feet. Donald Kick. Jesus. Okay. That was the only time they left, said re- <laughs> resident Donald Kick. The chute didn't the chute didn't open and he must have collided with his friend. All of a sudden they were on to the next thing. So, if it bleeds it reads. That's really oh, they're fucking vultures. God, the news. What has it become? Oh, here I am saying, like, oh, God, what? how awful that the news would be only interested in blood and guts. As I read the entirety of a book about a family abusing their children. As I cover true crime cases, both brutal and horrifying. I always want to make sure that we, you know, we pay due diligence to the victims of these crimes. The kids, you know, the people that die, the people that get abused, the people that get hurt. Because without them, these stories that we listen to would not be possible. The whole true crime boom would not be possible if not for these people going through the worst things in their lives. A lot of these stories, I I sit back and I, I listen to like... Uh, like this woman was she had her hands cut off by a serial killer and was pushed down a cliff but managed to crawl her way up and identify her attacker and send him to prison that is a real story that is a real story that happened to a real person and you know half of my brain thinks oh my god how interesting how amazing but then the other 50% of my brain thinks that is the worst day of her life That is the worst day of her life by far. How rude of me to take any sort of like revelance in this. How rude of me to go, oh my God, how fascinating. When that's the worst moment of their lives. But we can't help ourselves as human beings when we see behavior that is outside the norm. When you see aberrant behavior, you can't help but want to study it. And there might be some people that are in a different camp than I am. Of course there are. We all have our limits to what we're able to listen to. Me, where I draw the limit, um, 
I will listen to stories about crazy murders. I will listen to stories about horrific rapes and and war crimes and and crazy instances of child abuse and oh this man died in this crazy way. But if you present me with a story about a school shooting, Columbine, Parkland, I I can't. I can't. I find it so difficult. And even before I was a teacher, I found it difficult because I, I don't, I, you know, I don't know. I don't know. I couldn't tell you why. Definitely being a teacher, especially. Um, but even before then, like, I remember there was an episode, last podcast on the left is one of my favorites. They did a, an episode on Columbine and I listened to the first 15 minutes and I, it made me sick, made me sick. Not because of, you know, how they were dealing with it, but just because of the fact that they were talking about it at all. And then I tried another podcast about Columbine. I only made it five minutes before it made me sick. So we all have our limits, but, you know, we have to recognize that these people went through hell in order to give us these stories. So if it bleeds, it reads. That is absolutely true. That same day, Dr. Randy Turpin contacted Child Protective Services in California, expressing interest in adopting some of his younger nieces and nephews. He even posted a video message online for the siblings, saying, I'm looking forward to having you join us. But when CPS returned his call, there was no answer, and he'd hired an attorney to field media inquiries. He was the one that came up with the fucking starvation thing in the first place. He had that whole starvation book. I don't trust the kids going to him. Fuck that. Since his brother and sisters-in-law's arrests, the president of Valor Christian College had kept a low profile, refusing to give interviews. But a 2011 photograph on his Facebook page showing Randy and David's families together at Disneyland had been discovered and shared by the media, along with the caption... A memory that I will hold on to for the rest of my life. It was so great being with you guys. His book, Mm-hmm, 21 Days of Prayer and Fasting, had also received extensive publicity in the light of the malnourished condition the Turpin children had been found in. Church of God pastor Ray Hurt said he knew Randy was familiar with his religious work. His family seems very well balanced, said Dr. Hurt. So what's going on with David is a complete anomaly. Dr. Hurt insisted that fasting was always done in a biblical context and never forced on anybody. And so I would think, knowing Randy the way I do, said Dr. Hurt, that his approach to fasting had absolutely no connection with anything that went on there. I mean, they're in complete different contexts. On Wednesday, David and Louise Turpin were back in Riverside Superior Court to hear Judge Emma Smith's ruling on the prosecution's motion to stop them from contacting their children. Before the hearing, public defender Steve Harmon had filed a motion claiming the extraordinary media coverage of the Turpin case could poison a future jury pool and requesting a change of venue for the trial. At 1.30 p.m., the press was allowed to enter Judge Smith's courtroom, where Louise and David were already sitting at the defense table, shackled at their wrists and feet. Defense lawyers had visited the Turpins' home and collected clothes for them to wear at their hearing. David was wearing a gray suit with a purple shirt and tie, and Louise had a white button-down shirt and jacket, her frizzy, graying hair falling over her shoulders. 
At one point, she looked at her husband and smiled. <clears throat> these are, when you see these pictures of David and Louise, they're definitely them at their worst. Um, these are the pic- this is the image that I have of Louise Turpin every time I think of her, of the frizzy hair, scowl on her face, crying in the courtroom. I see pictures of her like in her life. She has her hair done, she's skinny, and she looks kind of decent. But I still can't help but think of that nasty fucking frizzy-haired bitch at the trial. Deputy District Attorney Kevin Beecham began by explaining that prosecutors had had to divide the 13 children over two protective orders since there were so many of them. Then, as David and Louise Turpin looked on without a hint of emotion, Judge Smith read out her three-year protective order. You must not harass, strike, threaten, assault, follow, stalk, molest, destroy, or damage property of the victims, she told them. Disturb the peace of, keep under surveillance, or block the entrance of the protected people. You must try not to, or actually get, their addresses. You must have no personal, electronic, telephone, or written contact with any of the people listed, except through their lawyer. And finally, you must stay at least 100 yards away from them at all times, other than court proceedings, where everyone is ordered to be present. Okay, alright? The two defendants nodded. Judge Smith ordered them to be back in court on February 22nd for a felony settlement conference to discuss the attorney's preparedness for a preliminary hearing. Outside the hearing, Louise grinned at her attorney. Outside the courtroom, David Mocker told reporters that he had already begun his investigation into the case, refusing to elaborate further. A Riverside County public guardian had been appointed to care for the seven adult Turpin children as they were unable to care for themselves. They would eventually move into a supervised living facility. The six minors, who had asked to remain together, had already been discharged from the hospital and split up to live in two foster homes. You have two different agencies overseeing the children, said Press Enterprise reporter Brian Rokos. The public guardian has oversight of the adults, and the Department of Social Services has oversight of the minors. Texas Robinette told Inside Edition, um, Texas Robinette, what the fuck? Teresa. I need a light in here. Do I have a light? I don't know why I don't have a light on. I turned it on. Oh, that's so much better. Why wasn't I doing that? I'm a stupid little boy. Teresa Robinette told Inside Edition that she did not want the six underage siblings to be kept apart. That's the worst case scenario, she said. We would like to get family members of ours together to make sure that each one of the kids is placed with a blood family member. That way, even if they are scattered, they would still be with our family and they would still have a connection for life. On January 27th, the two-week anniversary of Jordan's escape, DA Michael Hestron appeared on the local KCBS News for an investigation update. We're working around the clock to leave no stone unturned, he said. The DA theorized that the Turpin family had been able to fly under the radar so long because of their nocturnal existence. These crimes, he said, by their very nature, happened behind closed doors and in dark places, and they go undetected. What a brilliant point. What a brilliant point. If they were doing all this in the daylight, there is no fucking way they would have gotten away with it for so long. Jesus. He was then asked how the victims were progressing, 
both emotionally and medically. They're doing well, he replied. They're relieved. They're being well-fed and being well-cared for. My sense is that they've got the best professionals looking after them, not just their physical well-being, but their mental and emotional well-being. Hestrin again said that he believed the hundreds of journals the siblings kept over the years would provide significant evidence against their parents at trial. You have to sit back for a second, he said, and think how rare it is to have evidence directly of what a victim in a case like this went through. The day after David and Louise Turpin were ordered not to have any contact with their children for three years, Australian kidnapping victim Natasha Campush gave an interview, saying the siblings should be able to confront their parents. Now 30, Natasha had been snatched off a of Vienna street at the age of 10 by Wolfgang Priklobil. What? Priklobil. Jesus, that's awful. I've heard of her case, but I didn't... Good Lord. She then spent eight years as his hostage in a secret cellar under his garage. I remember she just, like, she, she escaped at some point. Finally, she ran away and alerted authorities, but Priklopil committed suicide by jumping in front of a train before he could be arrested. Campush, who has written several books about her ordeal and participated in a documentary, told The Sun that it would be a vital part of their healing process for the Turpin children to interact with their abusers. It's important that they have contact with their parents, she said, and the ability to visit them in prison. They will need to find a way to either forgive them or leave them behind. Being able to tell their parents that they either hate them or forgive them would be very therapeutic, she said. It will help them begin a process where they can cope with the whole situation and get more stable. The children will need closure. Chapter 25. Learning to Fly. Since the Turpin children's rescue, Elizabeth Flores and Teresa Robinette had been speaking candidly to the media about their sister Louise's tragic childhood. Their first cousin, Tricia Andreasen, had also been a victim of her grandfather's abuse as a child. She had grown up with the three Robinette sisters, but lost touch with the family after leaving home. Then, in 2012, Tricia reconnected with Elizabeth on Facebook, and they began to rebuild their relationship. In the 25 years since leaving Princeton, West Virginia, Tricia had become an author, life coach, and motivational speaker. She calls herself an unstoppable warrior. Since Louise's arrest, the cousins had become even closer finding freedom after years of being instructed to remain silent about their childhood abuse. In the foreword to Elizabeth's memoir, which Tricia published, she wrote that God had given her a mission to help Elizabeth tell her story. My life, was calling, uh, my life calling was putting me front and center to raise my own voice, she wrote, and share it along with Elizabeth. On her Facebook page, I'm going to burp, I can feel it. You ready for it? A little tiny burp. On her Facebook page, Trisha posted photographs of herself and Elizabeth's on the sets for Good Morning America, ABC World News Tonight, and the Dr. Oz Show. My beautiful cousin Trisha, Elizabeth commented, friend, mentor, coach, and most of all, my rock. On Monday, January 29th, Elizabeth appeared on Dr. Film, talking about how Louise had changed after eloping with David. When she left home, she wanted to put everything behind her, Elizabeth told Dr. Phil, including our family, because of our history of abuse as children. However, 
When Dr. Phil asked her for more details, she remained vague. Elizabeth emphasized the abuse was by a family member and not her parents, without elaborating further. But the next day, Elizabeth and Trisha appeared together on the Dr. Oz show, where they tearfully unmasked the family member who had molested them all. During the highly emotional interview in front of a studio audience, Elizabeth spoke in detail about the abuse. She theorized it could have led to Louise abusing her own children so many years later. Okay, now here's something. I'm going to pause for a little bit because I was kind of interested in all this. There's a lot of talk of interview footage. I mean, Elizabeth and Teresa, especially Elizabeth, they've been doing the circuits around the press, you know, because people want to know and they want to, you know, I, I assume they want to clear their name a little bit to, you know, prove it showed everybody that they didn't know what was going on either. And maybe give some insight onto the roots of the abuse. And I have a clip from that Dr. Oz interview that they just mentioned. And you're about to hear Elizabeth and Trisha appearing together, talking to Dr. Oz about the abuse, mainly about how they had to deal with that abuse. They don't exactly, I, I can't find the clip of them naming the person. Um, but still, this is a clip of the two of them talking, and it's... They are very, very strong. They're very strong women. So, take a listen. Can I ask you about the abuse? Yes. So, um, a family member, a very, very close family member that we're with daily um, abused all the cousins. Um, and it was just... Um, swept under the rug, I guess. Like, you don't talk about it. Um, if it come up, it was like we were lying or something. Like, it was, you know. You just didn't tell. Yeah, so we just didn't talk about it. And we were made to go around this person daily. I mean, I told my parents. I'm sorry, I've never, I haven't come out. Only to you, I only felt safe with you. I told my parents about what had happened to me. And they didn't do anything. They didn't like really stand up to him. I felt like I have to say this so you understand how our children, our childhood was created because the public doesn't understand. They think, you know, why didn't you see things or whatever. We were trained, all of us girls were trained to to be, to be fake or to not, not to come forward, that we had to be a certain way all the time. I feel like when you hear, you've been hearing me the whole time. You've been hearing like Elizabeth Flores talk and her voice has been, when she left home, she wanted to put everything behind her, including our family because of our history of abuse as children. And I, I have a great storytelling voice. That's why you're here. But... You know, the other part of the reason why you're here is for this harrowing story. And I, I wanted to give due diligence to these brave women for coming out and talking about this on such a national level. Because, my God, they hadn't even talked about it to anybody outside of their own outside of each other. Because that's just what they've been trained to do. 
You know, don't talk about family stuff outside of the family. I get it. Oh, man. Brave, brave women indeed. Um, goodness. So what did Elizabeth say? She said, I feel that a sense of control is maybe what she wanted. She never had control in her life growing up, and she didn't have friends in school and was made fun of a lot. That's where Disneyland and everything comes in. Elizabeth said, although she and her cousins had all gone through the same abuse, they were nothing like Louise. Can I ask you about the family abuse? Said Dr. Oz. A very, fuck, this is the exact quote. Holy shit, I turned the page, and there it is. A very, very close family member that we were with daily abused all the cousins, and it was just swept under the rug, I guess. If it came up, it was like we were lying. Elizabeth told him they had all been groomed by their abuser who would provide cues before it happened. It was like, we gotta go in the other room, you gotta give me a big hug, said Elizabeth. And we knew what that meant. Got a fucking tight hug. Ugh. Trisha added that she had told her parents about the abuse, but they did nothing about it. So all of us girls were trained, Trisha, to be fake or not to come forward. We just heard that. Oh my lord. Oh, I'm. Oh, I'm itching. I'm itching. Fuck, 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 fuck. Oh my god. Holy shit. Oh, she literally said. We were trained. All of us girls were trained to. to be. F to be fake or to not, not to come forward, that we had to be a certain way all the time. It is, it's so wild. It's so wild to me that we live in an era where the, I can just fucking bring that up, where I see the quote in the book and there's the audio of the real fucking citation of the quote. Good Lord, Elizabeth, Trisha, you are fucking heroes. You're heroes. You're heroes. You're... Anyone who has gone through any semblance of abuse like this, anybody who has gone through trauma and risen up out of it, clawed their fucking way out of that trauma, you're a hero. You are a hero to me. You're a hero to a lot of other people out there. And there might be a lot of... There are some people that might say, oh, you shouldn't make a hero out of people that are healing. You shouldn't make a hero out of people doing what they're supposed to do, blah, blah, blah. It's fucking hard. It's hard to come back from trauma. It is hard to come back from abuse. It is hard to claw your way out and feel like a normal person again. It's hard at even just like the base level of depression and anxiety. Like I have my own mental health issues. I've got my own problems. I've got I've got a chemical imbalance. I get angry very easily, but it's nowhere near. Nowhere near what Elizabeth Trisha, those Turpin kids went through, a lot of other people went through. Nowhere near what they went through, and they are much brighter people than I am brighter eyed have more hope than I ever could but they went through some shit to get here and that to me makes them a hero and I mean that sincerely and anyway if you're listening to this right now as a listener and if anything I said made you think of well I clawed my way out of this and if it invoked that you know when you get that bubble up feeling in your gut that goes up to your heart and you get real hot in your chest like man that's me i clawed my way out of some shit i you're my hero you are my hero you are a hero to me you are heroic to me that is brilliant brave and you should be proud of yourself just like i'm proud of you 
Oh. Elizabeth said there... Let's get back into the abuse. Good Lord. Elizabeth said their abuser was very wealthy, using his money as a bargaining tool. He was the family leader, she said. When my mom needed money, she ran to this person. Was this person her father? Asked Dr. Oz gently. Yes, Elizabeth admitted. She broke down in tears as Trisha gripped her hand in reassurance. Your grandfather? Yes. Elizabeth told Dr. Oz how her grandmother had once caught him raping Louise on the couch, which had led to their divorce. She took a frying pan after him, she sobbed, and she still didn't report it because the thing was that we had to keep our family name. It was a very small town, so everybody knew him. My grandfather would throw money at her as long as he got what he wanted. A Dr. Oz producer had tracked down John Taylor, now 93, and asked for his comments. No, I don't think they were sexually abused when they were little, he told the producer. I'm sure they weren't. Oh, my God. Ugh, what the fuck? That's disgusting. That puts a sour-ass taste in my mouth. That night, the Paris City Council discussed the House of Horrors, praying for the 13 children's recovery. Our hearts and prayers are with that family, said Mayor Vargas, with those kids as they continue to progress in therapy. It's been an extremely tough month for all of us. The council also donated $10,000 to the Paris Victims of Neglect Fund. On Wednesday, the Corona Chamber of Commerce hosted a dine-out day to raise money for the Turpin siblings. More than three dozen restaurants participated, donating 20% of their takings that day to the Children's Fund. More than $400,000 had now been raised, with contributions coming from as far away as Italy. Amy Duggar King. Oh, boy. <laughs> Fuck. Oh, Jesus Christ. Amy Duggar King, a cousin of the stars of the reality show 19 Kids and Counting, announced that she wanted to adopt all 13 of the Turpin siblings. Ironically, this was the show that David and Louise had always dreamed of emulating. I don't think that the the Josh Duggar shit had come out at the time of him writing this book, but boy oh boy, he could write another book about that, couldn't he, John Glatt? Oh my my... I would love to show them true love and have a beautiful life and provide a secure and stable home for them, Amy tweeted. Anyone who can hurt animals and starve, torture children in any way needs to be hung by their toenails. Watching the news just breaks my heart. God can restore what the devil has stolen. I would argue that I don't think that you should take those children. I think you should let them be. During their long years of incarceration, the Turpin siblings had passed the time by writing songs and singing to one another. Mark Uffer would often bring his acoustic guitar into their wing at the Corona Regional Medical Center and play them music. A drummer in a local rock band, Uffer thought music would be great therapy to help them heal. Music is very soothing and a great hobby, he told People magazine. It takes you to a quiet place. One particular favorite of the older siblings was John Denver's Take Me Home Country Roads, which they would sing along to. They all had good voices, beautiful voices, said Uffer, and the tears started running down the nurses' faces.
After learning that the Turpins were big John Denver fans, the late singer's estate sent over a box of his complete discography. Oh, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. TikTok has shown me, with as, as annoying as TikTok is as an app, one of the most beautiful thing about it is the people. Um, I remember on the road trip that I took, I didn't think I was going to get any money for that at all. And they and people were like, start to go fun. Because initially I was like, are there any videos that I can make for people that want to pay for like separate videos? And they were like, start to go fund me, start to go fund me. So I did. I only asked for $1,000. They ended up giving me like 3000 to take the trip. So I rented a nice car. I got to go on. I got to go to way more places than I ever thought I could go. And then I remember I was like, well, I don't just want to feel, I don't just want to take this trip and feel selfish. So I decided to do nice things for, I started to leave, I was like, I've always wanted to leave obscene tips. I've always wanted to leave disgusting tips at like a restaurant, like a Waffle House or a Chili's. And so I went to a Waffle House. I ordered a plate of biscuits and gravy and bacon and I tipped $400 and I left. And I didn't make a big deal out of it. I didn't film their reaction. I didn't be like, I'm giving you this $400 now and it isn't it going to help you. I just gave it and I ran. I just booked it because I didn't want that. I wanted them to realize that there was that much money in their hand after I had already fucked off. Um, I love doing that. I love, I, I love doing that shit. I love tipping in secret. I love just writing a number and then getting out of there. I can't do that so much anymore because the creator fund doesn't pay very well. But man, back in the day, I used to do that. And I used to, I mean, putting people's Venmos up. I can't do that so much anymore because a lot of people message me and ask like, can you put my Venmo up, this and that. I get so many messages from so many people and I don't know if they're true or not. Um, I There was one person that asked me for grocery money. I sent them grocery money. They said they were going to give me a receipt. I didn't get a receipt. Uh, they just scammed me out of $200. So I was like, mm. and that was a time when I kind of needed it. Um, but I figured I'd be nice because I thought they needed it. It was, I was very naive to do that. Um, so I only try to give organically to people that I sort of stumble across. There's one time I went to a waffle house in Louisiana. I was driving back home from somewhere and there was this dude, a cook, one of the cooks recognized me and he told me a story um, about how he just had a baby and his, his girlfriend was like just shot and killed like a week prior to that. So he was like, it's nice to see you. It's, this is a nice pick me up. Cause I've had a rough week. And I was like, uh, rough week. Um, hello. Number one. Uh, no, you don't get to say that I give you a smile after all that shit. I'm not that great. I am not that great. I I don't care what people say. I, I I'm not that great to pick you up out of that bad of a time. So I appreciate that, but you're wrong. Um <laughs> secondly, I was just so it was a moment where I was like, "Wow, let's re-examine your problems." Cuz I was like all the problems that I think I have and this man just told me that story and still has a smile on his face at almost maybe 11.30 at night, wee hours of the morning maybe. This dude is 
working with two other people wee hours of the morning, just grinding to take care of this fucking kid alone now. And he still has the energy to smile. So I put his Venmo in the thing and he and people sent him so much money. Inundated him with support. I think at one point he messaged me like a couple days later and said that he had gotten like 14 grand in gifts, which speaks volumes. It speaks volumes as to the direction that we're going as a people. We are being led into the ground. Um, There are problems in government. There are problems in Congress. There are problems with the higher-ups. You know, leadership is shit. And it always has been. I think that it always has been to some degree. But... Boy, oh boy, are people becoming more tolerant, more empathetic, more supportive of one another. That shit wouldn't have happened in the 90s, in the 80s, in the 70s. People murdered each other because there was lead in the air. It's beautiful to see. And just a random, like the estate of John Denver, given the whole discography. People from as far as Italy don't... they. As $400,000 they raised for the medical center alone, and I think like $60,000 the last time we got an update from just the Chamber of Commerce. Or no, I think they're up to 200000 I don't know. The generosity of people is amazing. People are, are very good at heart. People are squirrely, stupid animals, but damn it if we aren't mostly good. The way that I have been supported on TikTok, the way that I've been supported by people like you, people who are here to hear me for some fucking reason, with as annoying as TikTok can be as an app, with as annoying as that unfeeling algorithm can be, It's people like you that give me solace, that give me hope. It's the people like you that lifted me up by the arms when I was at my lowest point. And, you know, at the same time, you also have to be wary of parasocial relationships because, you know... A lot of people have been with me on this journey and think that they know me. But the people that listen to my podcast, the people that show up to my Twitch, the people that comment over and over, the people like you. I'm not talking about the average follower because you are not the average follower. I'm talking to you directly. Um, (laughs) There are, I have 6.2 million followers. That's a, that's a lot of people. That's a lot of people. Um, you're going to have, statistically break it down, you're going to have some that are just commenting just to get my attention just because of the number. You have some that are just like weirdly obsessed for some reason. But then you got people like you, people that are listening because for some reason you like what I'm selling. You, you're you picking up what I'm putting down. You're 
You're you're sniffing my stew and you're enjoying it. And I don't know why, and I don't think I ever will. And no matter how many people tell me, I get and I get comments like, "The reason why is because you're funny and you because you're bright and you're bubbly and you pick people up when you're." Da- I don't know why. It's still, I don't know. I don't know why. I do, yeah, I'm funny. I can tell a good joke. I do weird voices. But why does that help people not kill themselves? Come on. People have told me that I've saved them from the worst points in their life, and I'm like, I don't know if I can take the credit for that. I can't. Because what the fuck is so special about me? About me? Me? I don't think that much. But for some reason, you guys are still here. A lot of you have been with me since day one. And there's something incredibly special about that. There's something beautiful about that. And... There have been creators of mine that I've been following for years like that. And I have a wonderful sense of pride in their accomplishments when they do well. So I can put myself in your shoes as well. I'm very grateful that you're here at all. I'm very grateful that anybody would be willing to hear me talk at length. Anybody would be willing to hear me read from a book. Anybody would be willing to give me compliments when I'm down and let me know that I'm doing well and that I'm loved just out of nowhere. You are amazing. You, specifically. And I'm very glad you're here. Where were we? They get the John Denver discography. Uffer contacted the Fender Guitar Factory, which is located in Corona, asking it if it could donate some guitars to the siblings. The legendary guitar maker was only too happy to oblige, sending over 13 acoustic guitars. After they were delivered to the hospital, staff lined them, up, lined them all up against the wall, labeled with each sibling's name. The kids were then brought in and given the guitars. They were overjoyed and overcome by the gifts. The sight would have brought you to your knees, said Uffer. They all wanted to love you and hug you and say thanks. They are very appreciative. Before being rescued, none of them, except Joshua, had ever seen a real guitar before, except on television or in the movies. To see them actually hold a guitar, reflected Uffer, was heartwarming to watch. They didn't know what to do with it, but they liked the sounds it made. They immediately started guitar lessons, held in a hospital conference room that had sing-alongs. Another favorite was Tom Petty's Learning to Fly, the emotional, optimistic lyrics really resonating with them all. They fell in love with the song, said Uffer. They seemed to understand it. Wednesday, February 14th, Valentine's Day, marked the one-year anniversary of the children's escape. Oh, I had a hiccup, excuse me. To celebrate, the Turpin siblings all received special gifts from the Corona Chamber of Commerce. Chamber President Bobby Spiegel had received a call from a woman in North Carolina who had just started her own porcelain doll business. She said she'd like to send a couple dolls, said Spiegel, and I said I needed ten, and so she hung up the phone and prayed. The woman, who makes collectible religious dolls, emailed all her customers and vendors asking for money to buy supplies. Within a day, they had donated enough for her to make each of the Turpin girls her own personalized doll. They're beautiful, said Spiegel. 
and we gave them to the girls on Valentine's Day, and they fell in love with them. But the chamber did not forget the three boys, who had already grown out of the clothes bought for them a month earlier. One of the best blessings is that they're being nourished with good food and exercise, said Spiegel, so the pants that we had bought them early on don't fit them, and we went out and bought them each three new pairs of pants for Valentine's Day. I love that they're growing. When was this book written? I wonder when I'm looking at the copyright right now. So this book was 2019. I wonder how these kids are doing right now. Are they okay? Are they doing all right? Have they learned to live? Are they independent? I hope so. Staff at the Corona Medical Center had also set up an outdoor area where the siblings could exercise and play soccer and basketball. They were eating well for the first time in their lives. They loved lentil soup, fish, and lasagna, but still couldn't tolerate burritos. Oh, man. Taste aversion is a very real thing. The siblings delighted in making personalized bracelets for hospital staff, using lettered beads to spell names and funny messages. They would take the stretchy twine and make bracelets out of, said Uffer. And they would make one for me saying, outstanding CEO or coolest CEO ever. We had lots of donations of crafts, people saying Play-Doh, uh, crayons, and coloring books. They also left post-it notes in various staff offices to show their appreciation. They would write things like, we love you, and thank you for taking care of us. They even left one for the hospital CEO with a picture of a horse and the message, Green Acres is the place for Mark Uffer. They do have a good sense of humor, said Uffer. They are very loving, and you can tell they're hungry for attention. One morning, someone snuck onto the Turpin property and stole one of David Turpin's cars. A few hours later, his Volkswagen Beetle disappeared, too. Then, someone slashed the tires of the Turpin's Chevrolet van. Riverside County Sheriff's Department soon arrested a 29-year-old drifter for the theft of the Volkswagen. Their first stolen car has never been recovered. I wonder who has that. Isn't that so gross of me to be like, that's the problem with true crime, is that immediately I'm like, ooh, I wonder who has that fucking car. I wonder what it smells like. I wonder. Nasty bastard. What a nasty bastard. A month after their lives had been turned upside down, Muirwoods Road was slowly returning to normal for the Turpins' neighbors. Since the arrest, the street had been besieged by media from all over the world. A dozen television trucks had occupied most of the available curb space, and residents could not step aside without reporters questioning them about the Turpin family. Neighbor Kimberly Milligan said her street had become an amusement park. The morbid curiosity, she said. That's what's most disheartening. Uh -oh, she would hate to know what I'm doing right now. Tell me more, Kimberly. What do you have to say about this? It's tunnel vision to that house and not respecting everyone else. Wendy Martinez told the Press Enterprise that this will be a scar on our neighborhood forever. Every car that passes is a stare down. Outside 160 Muirwoods Road, the motley collection of balloons, candles, and flowers was still growing. Among the dozens of moving messages left on the porch, one from another abuse victim stood out. Sweet children, it read. I come from an abusive childhood as well. I learned to trust God and truly rise above it. This is now your story to help other kids recover from something similar too. 
The road is long and painful, but you will rise and be strong from it. Trust the Lord and keep your faith in Him. On Friday, February 16th, D.A. Hestron announced... (coughs) (coughs) He did not announce cough. He announced his intention to put some of the Turpin siblings on the stand to testify against their parents if the case went to trial. Ooh, that'd be fucking hard for him. Speaking at the Corona Chamber of Commerce's monthly meeting, he said that over the next few months, his highly trained victim advocates would be helping the Turpin children become acquainted with the court process. When you have a child victim, he explained... You just can't put that child on the witness stand like you would an adult. They've got to understand and feel comfortable with the process. Hestron said that the Turpin siblings would likely go to court several times before they testified to meet the judge and familiarize themselves with the courtroom and experience sitting on the witness stand. It's traumatizing, explained Hestron. Imagine a child who's been abused by a parent, victimized by a caregiver, and now we're going to ask them to come into court and relive that crime in front of a jury, in front of strangers. Imagine having to recount the most painful moment of your lives, when you were the most vulnerable, having to talk about it in public and be questioned about it and have your credibility questioned. Let's not forget part of... Part of going on the stand also invites cross-examination. So these kids are going to be questioned by the defense attorneys, like, were you really abused? Me, me, me. It's going to be hard for them. DA said that he had personally prepared child victims for court before, and he would always tell them to never look at their abusers as they testify. I told them, you can look at me, and we're going to talk, said Hestron. Look me right in the eye, and we're going to have a conversation just like we're doing right now and it would start to get these kids to feel comfortable, get them to be able to talk and to testify in what would otherwise be an impossible situation. Meanwhile, a Riverside County probate judge had appointed attorneys Jack Osborne and Caleb Mason of the Los Angeles-based law firm Brown, White, and Osborne to represent the seven adult siblings. This is a new experience for them, said Osborne, understanding that they do have rights and they do have a voice. The attorneys told CBS News that their new clients were all progressing well at the Corona Medical Center, although their discharge had been put on hold after a flu outbreak. The siblings were using their new iPads and catching up on Harry Potter and Star Trek movies. For the first time in their lives, they had the freedom to spend their time however they wanted. That's a big deal, said Osborne, deciding what they're going to read, deciding what they're going to wear. These are all decisions they make every day that are new and empowering. It's been more like being on a cruise ship than at this hospital. Although the six younger and seven older siblings had not seen one another since their escape, they communicated daily on Skype. The older ones wanted to go to the beach or to the mountains or watch movies, said Osborne, and would like to eventually attend college and have careers. They all have their own aspirations and their own interests, he explained, and now they may have an opportunity to address those, which is really exciting. Corona Mayor Karen Spiegel, married to Chamber of Commerce President Bobby Spiegel, told People Magazine that she received daily progress reports on the older siblings from their nurses. They are warm and loving kids, she said. Even though they're adults, we keep calling them kids. They just have some growing up to do. On Friday, February 23rd, David and Louise Turpin were back in court, where they were each charged with three additional counts of child abuse. Louise was also hit with another felony assault charge. Further investigation has led us to amend the complaint, explained Riverside County DA spokesman John Hall. It could add more time to the exposure they are facing. David, 
who was in shackles and wearing a black suit with a blue shirt, had his hair trimmed since the last hearing. Louise, in a navy blue suit, seemed unusually animated, swiveling and rocking in her chair as she, as she glared at reporters. Both sets of lawyers told Judge Emma Smith that their clients pleaded not guilty to all the new charges. Prosecutor Kevin Beecham told the judge that he would only call police officers to the stand if the case went to trial to avoid the children having to testify. With the preliminary hearing where it would be determined if there was sufficient evidence to proceed to trial, scheduled for May 14th, defense attorney David Mocker argued that he may need more time to prepare. Given the voluminous discovery in this case, he said, including audio and video statements, significant physical evidence, I am skeptical of being ready on May 14th. I'm willing to set that date as a good faith date and will make the effort to be ready, but I don't know that we can. Your skepticism is noted, said the judge, setting another status hearing for March 23rd. Chapter 26 She's Living in a Fantasy World <coughs> Cough in the microphone, why don't you? <laughs> Three days later, the Dr. Oz show flew Elizabeth Flores and Trisha Andreasen to California to visit Louise and David Turpin behind bars. They were picked up at their hotel by the show's crime correspondent, Melissa Moore, the daughter of Keith Jesperson, the notorious Happy Face Killer. After surviving the trauma of growing up with her father, who was convicted of killing eight women and is now serving three life sentences in Oregon's state penitentiary, Moore wrote a book and became an advocate for the relatives of other serial killers. As the cameras rolled, she assured the women that she understood what they were going through. When I was about 15 years old, she told them, I had to go see my dad in jail, and I remember I didn't sleep at all the night before. On the drive to the Robert Presley Detention Center, Moore asked Elizabeth why she wanted to visit her sister in jail. Nothing changes the fact that she's my sister, replied Elizabeth, and nobody in the world is supporting her. And I don't support what she did, but I do support the fact that she's still a human being. Still, she was very nervous about seeing Louise, afraid to look her in the eye and see pure evil, or that she had been brainwashed by David. I really believe he's almost like a puppeteer, said Trisha. Like, if I do these things, I will get more of what I want, and he won't bring his wrath onto me, because we'll be partnered up as a team. As they arrived at the jail, Moore asked Elizabeth what she most wanted to ask Louise. Could she tell me why, said Elizabeth. What was she thinking? What led to this? More than two hours later, Elizabeth and Trisha emerged from the jail, looking stunned. They said Louise was in complete denial. She's living in a fantasy world, says Elizabeth. I kept thinking, am I going to see evil in her eyes? Louise had cried at first, but was happy to see them. She never once asked about her children, and appeared to think she had done nothing wrong. As I was talking to her, said Elizabeth, I realized that it's all fantasy. She's living in a movie. She's rewriting her own story. The next day, Melissa Moore drove them back to the jail, this time to visit David Turpin. According to Elizabeth, Louise had asked them to go and see him, as she felt bad that he never had any visitors. Poor baby. Elizabeth said the idea of seeing her brother-in-law again made her sick. I do wish Louise would not have asked me to do this. Added Trisha, I feel like I'm going to see a sadistic person. But after their visit... They had totally changed their opinion of David Turpin. 
He knew he had done wrong, Elizabeth explained. He was remorseful. He cried the entire time. It wasn't fake. She, did, she said David had broken down and sobbed uncontrollably at one point, even apologizing her, even apologizing for watching her in the shower so many years earlier. It was like I was looking at a little boy that was ready to confess everything he had done. He kept saying, I wish I could tell you about what we've done, what happened, but he'd been adv advised not to. The next day, they were scheduled to visit Elizabeth's nieces and nephews at the Corona Regional Medical Center. Before leaving the hotel, Moore filmed them putting the final touches on pillows they'd made for each of the seven siblings. They had embroidered uplifting messages on them, like, Let your light shine. But when Elizabeth and Teresa arrived at the hospital, they were turned away at the front door. They left the pillows with the siblings' attorney, Jack Osborne, expressing their disappointment at not being able to see the children. Moore then drove them to Paris to see the infamous House of Horrors for themselves. I feel like it's a nightmare I can't wake up from, said Elizabeth on the drive over. Every step is so nerve-wracking. After being filmed walking up to the front door and reading some of the messages left outside the home, Elizabeth broke down in tears. What hurt so bad is everybody else cared more about the kids than their parents, she sobbed. The kids just wanted help. They just wanted somebody to reach out. What they endured was hell for so long. Their cries, nobody heard. On March 2nd, world-famous cellist Yo-Yo Ma played a private concert for all 13 Turpin siblings at the Corona Regional Medical Center after hearing about their love of music and being moved by their tragic story. Holy fuck, what lucky kids. Wow! <sighs> Yo-Yo Ma is probably the the best cellist of all time, arguably. So that's what one of the best. So that's that's incredible. It was the first time all children had been together since the escape. An emotional moment for everyone. They were just really amazed, said Mark Uffer, awestruck by the level of the talent. They really enjoyed it. Ma who was in California at the time for a concert at the Hollywood Bowl, did not respond to media requests for comment or mention it on his official website. The private concert was arranged by the Corona Chamber of Commerce after Ma said he wanted to do something special for the Turpin children. He decided he wanted to go and visit with the kids, said Bobby Spiegel, and just interact with them a bit. And it was beautiful. One of the kids said, Hey, this is great, but who are you? They had no clue. Four days later, Good Morning America revealed that Jordan Turpin had been active on social media before her escape, posting a series of videos on her own YouTube channel and posting to Twitter and Instagram under the alias Lacey Swan. Can I find any of those videos? Let's see. Hey, everybody out there in podcast world, it's Casey Hamilton from A Slice of Ham, and I just want to let you know that I went ahead and bit the bullet and made a Patreon account for this podcast. I was... Initially very worried, initially very, you know, I convinced myself that, oh, people weren't going to sign up for it anyway. What do I have to offer? What extra stuff can I do? Blah, 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 this and that. And I thought long and hard about the tears, and I think that I have something that you guys would enjoy. There's something out there for everybody. There's something out there um, for anyone at 
whatever level that they want to listen to me at. So if you would like to support the show, if you'd like to help me uh, achieve my dream of doing this full time, then support my Patreon page. It's patreon.com slash a slice of ham. That's patreon.com slash a slice of ham. You can also look up a slice of ham on Google and search Patreon there, or you can go to my TikTok account, my beacons page, my Instagram. There's a link all throughout each of those social media sites. So if you want to support me, I thank you, thank you, thank you highly. And if you don't have the money to support me and you just want to listen anyway, thank you. Because I wouldn't be here if it weren't for you listening. I wouldn't be here if you weren't for you tuning in. So if you don't have any money to give, but you still want to listen to support, I appreciate that. But if you do have some money that you would like to spare and help me support my dream of doing this full time, then you are more than welcome to, and I highly appreciate it. That's patreon.com slash a slice of ham. Hope to see you there. <laughs> so after a brief ad break. Sorry, they're necessary. Uh, this is the eerie, this is the fascinating but eerie thing about the internet. As it turns out, you can find videos of Jordan, Tur- Jordan Turpin. Um, underneath the the lacy swan alias um you can also find the entire full wedding vow renewal of david and louise and the 13 children in vegas which if you are morbidly curious like i was i posted it to my patreon if you are a patreon subscriber you have access to that i gave you the link um not to be I don't mean to post that like, ah, this is crazy, me, me, me. Um, I need to adjust it and make it public. So I'll make that a public post for everybody to see. Um, but it, it's just fascinating to watch now that we know everything that we know about the case, now that we've read this far into it. If you are really listening and following along with this case thus far, I mean, it's it, it's haunting. It is haunting to watch. Um so the only solace is that we know that those children eventually got out and were eventually given love. So here is here's a song from Jordan Turpin. Never meant to be. We see him so close, but he was so far. We didn't even know where he was ended now. But it's over, it's over, it's over, it's over, it's over. I wanted to make a last, but I did. At any other, at any other glance, that audio clip would be like, "Oh, it's my little sister when she was nine, singing to the camera." But knowing what we know, that was Jordan Turpin desperately trying to escape her reality. 
That was Jordan Turpin trying to express herself with no stimulus, no audience to express herself to, so she looked out to social media. This girl is a saint for going through what she went through, and I highly, highly, highly appreciate her for holding out hope, because it's hard to hold out hope in situations like this. I can only imagine. Alrighty. So in this Good Morning America segment, promising a new look inside the House of Horrors, GMA reported that her last video was posted just a week before she escaped. Clips were shown of Jordan singing several of her songs, her face blurred out. As soon as the story broke, YouTube and Instagram immediately took down all her accounts, but her Twitter remained. The Riverside County District Attorney's Office refused to confirm or deny the videos were posted by one of the Turpin daughters. There has been a recent media report about one of the victims in the David and Louise Turpin case being on social media, read a statement issued by the DA's press office. Our office has not commented on that report, nor will we be confirming or commenting on it, as this continues to be an active investigation. In the first week of March, 93-year-old John Thomas Taylor gave a brief phone interview. He said he was aware that Louise had been arrested for torture and neglecting his great-grandchildren. No, I don't know anything about it, said Taylor. I just know they're in trouble. I've seen that on the news. They've been prosecuted, and that's all I know. When asked about the growing allegations of sexual molestation leveled at him by his female family members, he was noncommittal, though he'd been previously though he'd previously denied the claims to the Dr. Oz producer. Well, I don't need to be interviewed about that, he said. I can't understand what you're saying, and you don't need to know what my business is. Suddenly, he announced that he had had a will made three years earlier and was leaving everything to his only surviving son, James. I ain't leaving the grandchildren nothing, he snapped, hanging up. Bastard! That, I, I have no sympathy for that man. I hope he died in a violent way. Um, wow. Arguably the catalyst for all this. What a bastard. All right, well, we're going to end it there and pick back up on Chapter 27 next week. Holy shit, we are almost done with this fucking book. We are almost done with this book. Can you believe we're, read we're reading? We are readers. I appreciate you if you've stuck around this long, if you get a kick out of this, if you get a kick out of me reading, if you get a kick out of the whole you know, reading a book on a podcast thing. I appreciate it. If you want even more, there is a secret book club on my Patreon. Don't tell anybody. It's a secret. It's a super secret. Where uh, just for $10 a month, you get to pick the book that we read, and I get to read it uh, for you pleasurably. So there you go. <laughs> Thank you for sticking around. Um, if you would like to uh, join the family on the Patreon, you're more than welcome to at patreon.com slash a slice of ham. Uh, you're also more than welcome to follow me on Twitch if you want to watch me play video games and hang out with me there. It's uh, twitch.tv slash Hamilton Streams. I am branching out onto multiple platforms trying to make this social media thing work. I'm loving it. I hope that you're doing well. You do smell nice today. Thanks for listening to horrid shit. Have a good one. Take a shower. You need it. Bye.